0: She was usually quietly knitting in the courtyard because she was so well-to-do and had a courtyard, I guess. (laughs) Or she was kneading dough quietly in her beautifully unstained robe and there was silence all around her when all of a sudden a beautiful angel just pops in for an uninvited chat. But this, this is so different over the last few weeks, we've talked a lot about God's people and what they were experiencing prior to Jesus' arrival. You know, all that talk of exile and temple in rubble heaps of being dragged off to a foreign year, a land for years on end, only to come back to their hot mess of a homeland. And when Jesus finally enters the scene, we are told that Israel is no longer in exile. They're back in their homeland. And so we get the impression that, oh, that everything's okay. But it's not okay Because they may be in their homeland, but that doesn't mean everything is settled. They are the opposite of in charge. They are subjects at the total mercy of the political machine that was the ancient Roman Empire. And so when we see those images of the soldiers just gallivanting through the town taking what they want and conscripting people without serve are without notice into service and collecting taxes if taxes may or may not have been due doing as they please it gives us a glimpse into what Mary and Joseph and the people of God were experiencing during that time there's a fear and there's an insecurity a lack of control over their own lives and their own circumstances and it's as if chaos was just bubbling right below the surface like dry brush just waiting for a carelessly discarded cigarette butt emotional and psychological trauma from walking on eggshells have you ever had to do that around somebody you know they are just highly explosive and so you walk on eggshells living your life as best you can and doing everything in your power to remain unseen and unheard by the powers that be the romans now in our own history in the United States, we had a time like this. During the Jim Crow era, our black brothers and sisters lived in much the same way, going about their lives, but walking on eggshells around the powers that be, namely white people in power. And there were countless, as I was reading a book just recently, there are these countless documented cases, unusually of young men, who if they gave like the wrong look or used the wrong tone of voice, they would find themselves victims of terror and abuse and beaten and in far too many cases lynched, thousands lynched. Living in that kind of tenuous state, not knowing if any particular misstep on your part might end up with a fatal consequence. And that traumatizes people for generations, having to live in that state of walking on eggshells. And so to Israel is on eggshells, going about their business, avoiding eye contact, flying under the radar, trying to keep the peace. And so is it any wonder that Israel continued to cry out, oh God, would you open up the heavens and come down? Oh God, would you come down and set us free? Well, in the scene we saw chaos is just exploding all over and without warning, you know, those in power go in and go to work on the powerless the weak and the the the, they're abusing and uh, acquiring what they want and as the chaos rages around her I I look at Mary's face and that would totally be me Tommy's always the guy with the plan if there's like a crisis he knows exactly which exit you know he's always like that way and I'm like ah, that's me and so (laughs) yeah funny story so uh, when Mary is standing there and the chaos is swirling around her and she's looking around kind of disoriented, like, what do I do and, and where do I go? I, I get it. I get it, Mary. Because the chaos is overwhelming. But in the midst of that chaos, she hears that voice, doesn't she? Mary. Mary. Greetings, favored one. The Lord is with you. Now, the absurdity of this surely cannot be lost on you. Of all the people in that scene, of every single person in that moment of chaos and pain, Mary was without a doubt the most powerless, the most vulnerable person in the room, in the crowd, in maybe the entire empire. Because if this were a baseball game, she totally would have struck out. Strike one, she's a female in this male dominated world. And strike two, she is young, young that she's not even married yet. And three, she's Jewish a member of the subjects, the oppressed people with scant political power, living in the shadow of a mighty empire. And it is to this one, this unexpected, vulnerable, unqualified one, that this heavenly warrior, this messenger, messenger from on high comes. Now, on my own journey of faith, I have given so little thought to Mary, if I'm honest. I grew up, like many of you, 100% evangelical. And at some point along the way, I have no idea where I picked up this particularly unkind belief. I got it into my head that somehow Protestants, and mainly evangelicals, uh, namely me, uh, were more Christian somehow than my Catholic friends. So in my young and very ignorant mind, I had this thought in my mind that they did weird things. Like they worshipped Mary, didn't you know? And they prayed to Mary, did you know that too? And they always wear necklaces with the cross, and Jesus is still on the cross. And so in middle school, my litmus test for, like, your faith, if Jesus was still on your cross necklace, I'll pray for you. Absolutely. (laughs) Now, the evangelical solution to the Mary problem was to just hide her away in the closet until Christmas. And then and only then can we dust her off and we can bring her out for the nativity set. But you better believe on December 26th, we're putting her back where she belongs. Because Mary is nothing more than a Jesus receptacle. She is a walking womb. She is just a container to deliver the Christ child. Now, I am older now and hopefully a little bit more wise, more wise and perhaps a little bit more generous and ecumenical in spirit. So I am a little gentler with Mary these days, recognizing that what and who God deemed important to the story of God merits my full attention, right? Well, last week, we had the privilege, a week and a half, ago we had the privilege of hosting our third Christmas dinner for our Bennett parents. Now, many of you are familiar with what we do, uh, what work goes on there, but in case you aren't, we have a group of moms in our congregation called the Blessed Group, and it's moms of, like, toddlers and babies, and they have taken it upon themselves to develop relationships with the teenage parents in the Bennett High School, our, our alternative high school in town. Now, some of these very, very young parents have support at home, But many others have been dismissed or written off by their families for gotten themselves in such a tangle with this whole baby thing, right? And so we are of the mindset that, hey, the baby's been born. The baby's here. There's no going back now. So let's love them where they are and do what we can to offer hope and encouragement and grace in the midst of a less than ideal situation. So anyway, at this particular dinner, I was sitting at a table with one of our young moms. And she was one of the newest ones. Her baby was six weeks old. He was, like, about as big as a cantaloupe. Like, he's like, little tiny good. And, of course, I got all immediately warm and fuzzy, remembering when Jack-Jack was so tiny. And, no, I did not wish him to be tiny again. Do not misunderstand me. Uh, but we, uh, we snuggled the baby, then we went and grabbed the rock and play from the nursery and put the baby in there so she could eat the delicious meal that had been prepared for her. And the baby, you could just watch him, he like nuzzled in uh, into the blankets, and he was oblivious, just snoozing away like a newborn does. And his mama, so young, she was a freshman so young, and from this very large family with lots of siblings, and it was clear as we were hearing her story that she had grown up and frankly was continuing to grow up in poverty, with lots of moves all over the country, living in scattered, some sometimes inadequate housing. And I couldn't help but in that moment, as we were surrounded by holly and Christmas lights and trees, to remember Mary, young and poor, and powerless, and not much to offer, in most people's view, not much to contribute. So when it comes to power and influence, when it comes to the decisions that shift the world, everyone's eyes are on Washington, not on some too small apartment around the corner of an unwed mother in Mountain Home. We are far more concerned about what Paul Ryan or Chuck Schumer has to say about taxes than about a 15-year-old mom just trying to make it through high school. And to a girl like that would be born the world's king? Oh, Mary, no offense, but how absurd that you were the one chosen. There is no rhyme or reason, there is no logic to it at all, but the merciful wisdom of God. And so the absurdity stands out in even greater contrast. When we hear the words of the angel, it's in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 30. It says, Mary, do not be afraid, for you have found favor with God. And now you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no End. Now, Mary had heard those words before. They weren't new, but rather they bore in them the weight of centuries, of promises made long ago. In 2 Samuel, in in the Psalms, and even in the kind of uncomfortable apocalyptic writing of the book of Daniel, we find that same language of an eternal reign and an everlasting kingdom, a descendant of David on the throne. But the angel's words seem really out of context like the wrong song at the wrong time, like somebody bursting out in happy birthday at a funeral, and you're like, wait, no, that doesn't go here. Or somebody sings Rudolph at the 4th of July party, you're like, wait, what? No, great song, wrong time. Those words to that girl at that time? You see, in 2 Samuel, the very first time we encounter that language of this eternal reign, throne established forever, a kingdom, King David is the one hearing the words, and King David had plans like big plans, kingly plans. He wanted to build a temple, a really beautiful temple for the king of the universe. But God, that's not what he has in mind. He says to to David, he says, look, David, I took you from the pasture, from following sheep to be prince over my people Israel. And I've been with you wherever you went. And I have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, Your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. He's saying, hey, David, uh, in case you forgot, you were a sheep herding nobody just a few weeks ago. Do you remember this? Do you remember? I remember this. And look at you now. You are a prince of Israel, the king. I have been with you and you have done through me, you have done great things. And I am just getting started. But here's the thing, David. A temple it's not what I have in mind for you. What I want to do through your family cannot be contained in a building. Now, you can't blame David, though, because that's what he knew. He knew the presence of God dwelt in the tabernacle. It was like the temple on the go, you know, like the tent. They would move it around. And that's where God dwelt. The Spirit of God would descend there and it would fill the tent. And in the next generation, when Solomon was born and he did build a temple, the Spirit of God fell on the temple, too. And yet that was never like the end game. God's goal was like, if I could just get a temple, things would be perfect. No, that's not what God's end game was. His intention was never just to build a building made by human hands. There's more, something grander, something more befitting of a God who's the creator of all, right? So when the angel comes... And uses that exact same language of days gone by. He says, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon you, Mary. Just like it came on the tabernacle. Just like it came on the temple. It kind of feels like a step backwards. A downward spiral. Not a glorious climb. Okay, we have this awesome building and we're downgrading to a teenage womb. Awesome. Awesome this is the new dwelling place of the Most High, the womb of a child, unexpected is an understatement. Or, or is it? Because if you've been paying attention at all, you should recognize God's M.O. by now. Because this is so just classic God, isn't it? Taking the small and the broken and the humble and the poor, taking the weak and the powerless and doing mighty things, Abraham and Sarah, but a bunch of old childless wanderers. Who was King David, but a puny, less than forgotten brother shepherd they left in the field? Who was the warrior Gideon, except the lowest of his family and tribe? Who was the mighty judge Deborah, but a woman in a man's world? Who was Hannah, but a barren wife of a priest? It is just so classic, God, to take the weak and do mighty things. To take the small and do bigger things than we imagine possible. It is a radical divine initiative. God making a way for our salvation through unexpected means. But you know what else is just so classic God? Consent. Now it's a word I'm afraid we've heard more of than we'd like to recently as there has been an explosion of painful truth-telling these last few months in our society about those in positions of power exploiting those who are weaker or more vulnerable than themselves. And in most of the stories that we're hearing these days, it rarely, the situations, they rarely come down to a physical strength differential. You know what I'm saying? It's rarely, oh, that guy was just stronger than that person, right? That's usually not the case. It is always about a power differential. Whose words carry more weight? Whose position is more protected? Who is everyone more likely to believe? Who has a stronger sense of entitlement to take what's not theirs for the taking? It's about a power differential. And so here in this text, when it comes to a power differential, the one that exists between humans and divine, it's not even worth discussing, people. The difference is so great because, I mean, really, who are we? We are but dust. And yet, In Mary's encounter with the angel, the power differential is turned on its head. Because don't you suppose God could have been like, hey, kiddo, you're the gal for the job. Lucky you. Now get to it. Or, all right, little lady, I've decided it's time. Better go get yourself some maternity togas. (laughs) No. The angel has made this grand pronouncement, and Mary says, hold up, hold up there, winged buddy. How can this be? I'm a virgin. And the angel says to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. And now your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month for her who was said to be barren. For nothing is impossible with God. Then Mary. Now stop right there. Stop. There's a pause. A breath. A moment in time. The angel has just declared what God desires to do through Mary and her child, but the passage isn't finished yet. As John Stendhal puts it, he says, It is as if in that moment Gabriel and God and all the heavens stand in breathless suspense. All history, the salvation of the world now seems to hang on this young woman's answer. So often, especially during this season, we talk a lot about waiting, don't we? You're probably so tired of me talking about waiting. Waiting for God to act, waiting for God to heal, waiting for God to come. But in this moment, it's not us doing the waiting, it's God. God waits. God extends an invitation, He extends a call, a mission to join, and then He waits. He waits for an answer from a young girl. You see, while the world seems to rage in chaos right outside those gates, while an empire is dominating and subduing without consent or apology, the God of all creation waits. Waits for the quiet yes of a child, a girl. And so then Mary said, Here I am, the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And then the angel departed her. In that moment, in what I imagine to be a quiet, but oh so brave, oh so assured, yes, let it be. Mary is transformed. She is no longer just Mary. She is no longer just a walking womb. She is no longer just a mere receptacle. In that moment, Mary becomes the first disciple. Now I know what you're thinking. When you hear a disciple, you think of the impetuous, impulsive Peter. You think, jumping out of boats, you think of wily and angry Simon the Zealot, of James, and James the Beloved and of Thomas the Doubter. You think of the top 12. I get it. Not Mary. But here's the thing. In Luke's gospel, being a disciple has two elements. You hear the word of God, and then you put it into practice. You hear, then you do. You listen, then you obey. Two sides of one coin. The coin of true discipleship, you might say. Listen and obey. Now, when I was a little girl, I heard that phrase a lot. A lot. Stephanie, Rachel, listen and obey. And my brother is here and he will confirm this is not a pastoral story. This is a true story right here. And it's actually a very, very Jewish idea to listen and obey. And I've told you this like five times, so you could probably t- tell yourselves what I'm telling you now. But, you see, the word listen in Hebrew is the word "shema." And some of you might have heard Shema as that holy phrase that Jews Jews often recite. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Now that word "hear" is the word Shema, but it actually means more than just listen. In the Hebrew language, to listen is to obey. You can't separate the two; they can't come apart. So, if someone says uh, you, if you ask, if someone asked, if you heard what they said but you didn't obey it, you didn't really Shema it. You get what I'm saying? If you listened but didn't obey, you didn't shema. You failed. And Luke gets that. A true disciple shema's. A true disciple listens to the word and then he actually does it. A true disciple hears the word of the Lord and then gets to obey him. Now in Luke, the gospel, Mary gives us our very first example. You see a few verses prior to that. Zachariah, the father of John the Baptist, he has his crazy angel moment. An angel comes and says, "Your wife's gonna have a baby. It's gonna be awesome." And he's like, "Uh, no, we're old," and he responds not in faith but in doubt and in fear. And the result, <laughs> he loses his talking privileges for the next nine months. Bummer, dude. But not Mary. God extends the call. He extends the invitation. Mary hears it. God waits, and then Mary obeys. She responds not with fear and in doubt, but with full trust and full faith in the God of her ancestors, in the God who promised a Messiah. God called, and Mary heard. God waited, and Mary obeyed. Now, 21 chapters later, in Luke 22, there's another young Jewish man faced with a call from God. He's kneeling in a garden. He is bearing the weight of God's call on his shoulders, the call to give his life away on behalf of creation. And as Jesus knelt in the garden, head bowed, shoulders stooped, tears streaming down his face, I imagine he called to mind the image of his mother. The image that he had created in his mind, he had been told the story, Jesus, when you were before you were even conceived, the Lord came to me, and I said yes. And he tells the story to himself in his mind. In his mind's eye, he sees his mother as she says yes to God and yes to the call. I imagine Jesus, as he is kneeling under the weight of that burden, he calls to mind the cold mornings in Nazareth as he would roll over on his mat to see his mother kneeling in prayer again, saying yes to God again, saying yes to that call day after day. And I imagine Jesus in that moment gathering strength from the faith and the faithfulness of his mother. And he responds to his father's call with her language. Here I am. May it be unto me as you have said. He got it from his mama. (laughs) You see, God called, and Mary heard. God waited so patiently, and Mary obeyed, setting an example not just for, for, uh, for us, but even for her family. I imagine Jesus following in the steps of his faithful mother. Thus, the Holy Spirit fell upon her as in the days of old. That enlivening, life-giving, life-creating breath of God filled her as it filled the tabernacle and the temple. And as a result, Christ was born into the world, born to live and die and rise again for us and for our salvation. Because she said yes. Now, perhaps the temptation now is is to give Mary a little hug thank her for her service, and then shuffle her back off to storage for the next 11 months. Yeah, we've upgraded her from a walking womb to the first disciple, but is there more? I mean, my dad always says in his sermon, so what? Great story. So what? So glad that she said yes to God so Jesus could be born. I feel warm and fuzzy, and I may even look on Mary with a little less suspicion from here on out. But beyond that, so what? Well, the story isn't over. You see, the story of God's redemption, uh, of God's redemptive work in the world is not over because that same spirit that stirred and ordered those chaotic waters of Genesis, the same spirit that quickened the womb of Sarah to bear forth Isaac, the same spirit that fell upon Mount Sinai and the tabernacle and the temple, the same spirit that roared down from heaven to fill that place, the same spirit that brought back to life those bones in Ezekiel, the same spirit that came upon Mary to conceive Christ, and that same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, that same spirit fell on the church in Acts, enlivening it and quickening it and mobilizing it to continue God's kingdom work of restoration and redemption until he comes. And so that same spirit falls upon the church on us even today in mountain home even on us as unexpected and as surprising as that might seem don't forget god's mo working among the least of these to bring about his kingdom that same spirit falls even upon you upon me calling us to bear christ to the world for the world once again now god still calls will we have ears to listen god still waits will we obey may it be so this christmas amen and amen lord we have come to see what you have done and we stand in awe we stand in awe that you would come to one like mary That you would see fit to send your spirit upon her. And that she said yes. She showed us what it looks like to listen and obey. And so, Lord, we recognize that that same spirit falls upon your church even now. And so would you give us the ability to say yes, yes, a thousand times yes when we listen and obey as you call, that we might bear Christ to the world once again this Advent season, as we are the embodiment of your kingdom on earth, as we await your second Advent. Lord, send your Spirit that we might be faithful in the mission that you have given us. May we, like Mary, say, Here I am, Lord. May it be unto me as you have said. We ask all of these things in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit. Amen and amen. Would you stand as we close in worship? Beloved Christ Church, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction? Beloved Christ Church, may you hear the word of the Lord. and May you obey. May you say to him with full faith and trust, here I am. May it be unto me as you have said. Now go in action and go in peace. Amen. You are dismissed.